Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nick Rita, your host. Thank you for tuning in. It's our privilege to welcome you to the program and we're inviting you to stay with us for this hour as we are again uh, looking into the Bible, the wonderful book of Revelation. And we are going to learn some maybe new things for some of us. And it's always very good to be able to to relate to the Bible in accordance with some of the topics. And today we are going to talk about the good news of the judgment, an exciting topic for today. I'd like to welcome our panel, and it's good to have you with us, uh, Brenton. Thank you, Nick. Uh, we're really looking forward to this particular study together. Hi, Denise. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here. It's also good to have um, Ken with us, too. Thank you, Nick. It's always great to be here. And Len, thank you for joining us. Hello, listeners, and we're glad you've joined us today. Joe, thank you for being part of this uh, discussion today. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Nick. And I'll say hello to Jerry. It's good to have you with us, Jerry. In particular, I'd like to thank you for taking extra time to prepare this study. You are going to facilitate uh, this discussion today, and welcome to the program. It's a privilege, Nick. Looking forward to it. All right. Well, um, with such an exciting uh, topic today, talking about the judgment and how that can be a good news, I'd like you to take us through, Jerry. Thank you, Nick. Yes, our study is called The Good News of the judgment. Now that almost sounds like a contradiction. When people speak about God's judgment, often causes unease, if not fear in the minds of many, because they're uncertain of the outcome and because the verdict is irreversible. Am I saved? How can I be sure? My good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. We know that the word gospel means good news, and that good news is beautifully encapsulated in John 3.16 where it says that God loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son to die in our place, so that whoever believes in him should not perish or be lost forever, but have everlasting life. Now, that's the best news anybody could ever wish for. Our lesson today focuses on the good news of the judgment. So what's good about the judgment? Good news for who? Why would you need a judgment anyway? For those who've already confessed their sins to Jesus and received his forgiveness. Is there a link between the good news of what happened at Calvary and the good news of what happens at the judgment? Is one complete without the other? Or are they both equally necessary in the overall plan of salvation? We know what Christ did for the human race at Calvary, but how important is it is his presence in the judgments and what he achieved there? So in the time allocated, we'll do our best to answer these questions. But first, I'd like to start our discussion with a short prayer. Brenton, can you start with a short prayer? Certainly. Father in heaven, we come into your presence today through Jesus, our high priest, and also our mediator, the one who stands for us in the judgment. We know that the judgment is proceeding in heaven right now, and we thank you that in Christ we have everything we need, that we can face the judgment with confidence. Thank you for the promises of your word. Thank you that Jesus made a watertight case as to why we should be admitted to heaven on the basis that we have accepted him as our sacrifice 
And I pray for ourselves as a panel and our listeners as we proceed to discuss this subject today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, Denise, what evidence can we find in both the Old and New Testament that God is our judge and of a judgment process? Well, Jerry, there are lots of texts in the Old and New Testament that show that God is our judge and that there is a judgment process. And the first one comes from Genesis chapter 18 and verse 25. And it's a situation where uh, the judgment has been made on Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham pleads with God not to kill the righteous with the wicked. And it says uh, in Genesis 18, 25, far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? The next text I'm going to share with you is found in Psalms 58, verse 11. And again, it's a similar idea of God judging all men on earth and rewarding those who worship him. And it says, then men will say, Surely the righteous still are rewarded. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. Again in Psalms, Psalms 94, verse 1 to 2, O Lord, the God who avenges, O God who avenges, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Pay back to the proud what they deserve. Another text in Psalms is found in Psalms 98, verse 9. And it reads like this, let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. So all of those verses in the Old Testament uh, refer to the idea that God is not going to lump the righteous in with the wicked when he judges. He's going to judge with equity. So he's going to uh, reward those who have followed him. Then in the New Testament, we have two texts that we're going to look at. The first one is in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, and it reads like this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And our final one that we're going to look at is Romans 2, verses 5 to 6. And that reads like this. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepented heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. Excellent. Thank you, Denise. There are so many verses in Scripture, both in the Old and New Testament, that that speak of a judgment. And um, one of them that I, I really like as it hasn't been mentioned, is uh, found in Ecclesiastes. In the very last chapter, and in fact the very last two verses, it says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So that's very clear, isn't it, that um, there is a judgment, but the good news of the judgment. That's what we're going to be focusing on today, the good news. Where can we find the good news of the judgment? But first we go to the significance of the judgment hour. Uh, Len, what's the significance of the judgment hour in the context of the declaration that is found in Revelation 14 verse 7, where we read, 
Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Yes, well, I have to say this, that there are lots of people, lots of Christians who have a pretty fuzzy idea about the judgment. Some are of the idea that because God is loving and good and kind and gracious, we don't need to worry about the judgment. However, it does just, the Bible does say that we are going to be judged according to our works. And one of those works is how we relate to the Lord. Now, right now, this very moment, we have somebody living in our home who's been abused, badly abused by her husband. And we're providing her with safe haven. And uh, the husband probably thinks that he's going to get away with all this. But yesterday, after some conversations with the police, this lady who's staying with us, the police told her he will be brought into account. Now, she didn't want that to happen, but the police are going to make sure it does happen. So there's one thing we can be sure about. We all will be brought into account. God has appointed a time when every single person who's ever lived on the face of this earth will be brought into account. All right, now I want to go back to that point where some people say, oh, the Lord, he's so good and loving and kind. He will, he will never do anything that's um, going to be hurtful. Well, I want to uh, share with you God's description of himself. It comes from Exodus chapter 34. And Moses wanted to see God. And uh, God didn't actually reveal himself physically, but this is what he said. Well, this is what the Bible says. The Lord passed before him, this is Moses, and proclaimed about himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And then there's a but. But who will by no means clear the guilty. Now, if there's going to be guilty and innocent, there has to be some sort of judgment. So the, the time of God's judgment is happening right now, as Revelation 14 says, the hour of his judgment has come. And when that's finished, then there will be a wind-up of the uh, issues and a wind-up of what's happening on planet Earth. Mm. In other words, the time has come to settle once and for all Satan's false claims that God is unjust, unloving, unfair, and unreasonable. Mm. Yes, thank you, um, Len. I think we'll unpack that a little further, perhaps, uh, in the uh, study as we go along. Um, but, Ken, what other reason can you think of that makes the judgment hour so vitally important? Well, there's there's a few reasons here. And I think, of course, that when Jesus comes back, there are only going to be two types of people on this earth. One is those that believe, and the other is those that don't believe. Now, the judgment we believe is taking place at this very moment for the earth. 
And uh, it's very important. We read in John 3.16, a well-known Bible scripture, For God so loved the world that he gave his own, his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I'd like to add another scripture to that that I think is very important, and that is Revelation 22 and verse 12. I believe this is something that many Christians don't understand, and certainly many other so-called believers don't understand. And it says, and behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give to every man according as his work shall be. Now here we see that Jesus is coming back now. Jesus is not coming back to this earth. He's coming back in the heavens above, and all people who believe in him and keep his commandments and have the faith of Jesus will be called up to meet him. So the judgment does have eternal consequences. Either you're going to live forever, or you will be destroyed, and you will never see or live the wonderful life that God has already prepared for us. Sometimes I believe that people in the world think that this is the life we're living here, but really that's not correct. The life in this earth is only a prelude to the wonderful life that God has uh, set before us, those that believe and trust him. But while we say that God's love and mercy for man is on display of the whole universe, you see, at Calvary, his justice and righteousness is on display for the whole universe, to see in the judgment. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Ken. And uh, Brenton, you wanted to add a comment? Yes, just um, something that's been said that Len's mentioned and Ken's touched on it as well. The latter part of this chapter 14 and verse 7 in Revelation says, Worship him who made the heavens of the earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. That's a direct reference to the fourth commandment in Exodus chapter 20. Here is my my thought on this. If you're going to be appointed as a judge, obviously there has to be a basis upon, let us remember that this judgment is God's judgment. So why does God have the authority to judge? The question is answered in the second part of verse 7, where it says, worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of waters. In other words, God is entitled to be the judge because he made everything. He made every one, and that's the basis upon which he can judge. But we also need to remember, I think, that this judgment is regarding God's character. That's not just regarding us. Thank you, Brenton. Uh, Nick, you wanted to say something? I just want to add on what Brenton was saying, and the judgment, the reason of the judgment is also because of the transgression of the law. I mean, God made heavens and earth and everything, but it something happened, and something happened here on this earth, happened in heaven also, when sin started, you know, through um, through the disobeying of uh, one of the angels, which we know now as the devil, Satan, and now even from a human perspective, we expect some things to be clarified. And uh, we are looking forward to that judgment. And the reason we are saying that this judgment, it's a good news, is because God already provided for all those situations, you know, for the sin provided. And we may talk a little bit about this a bit more as we go. Mm. Now, Joe, 
But God's judgment is not only for the benefit of those who have lived on earth, but for the whole universe, all of God's creation. Do we just have to take God's word for it, or that his judgments are in fact uh, right and just? What evidence is there to support the truthfulness of these claims? And how can we be certain that God hasn't made a mistake in giving eternal life to one, but not to the other? Well, um, we could probably go to Daniel, the book of Daniel, and in chapter 7 we have a vision that Daniel was given in the night, and he says, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool, his throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze, a river of fire flowing coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Now I know we've looked at this you know, group of this vision in the past, but it brings us into the judgment scene, and we have it, it's breathtaking and majestic, and Daniel tries to capture into words what he sees. The thrones were set. Now, some translations, Bible translations, say seats or chairs, but the use of thrones is probably more descriptive. The word kise, denoting the seat of a king, judge, or priest. So it carries with it significance. These guys didn't just pull up a chair. There's something very processional, procedural here, and there are millions of witnesses looking on in wonder and interest. And we might wonder wonder what are these books and what are their contents? Why so much interest? Now we know in Revelation 20 verse 12, and I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God and the books were opened. So we here we have these books. And another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged out of the, those things which were written in the books according to their works. So clearly these books hold the records of everyone's lives. All that has transpired, it says that the dead were judged out of what was written in the books according to their works or basically how they lived lived here. There are no secrets. No one gets away with anything. Even those who had managed to evade justice while they were alive are now to face their own life records. Something to remember is there are no mistakes because God knows everything. In fact, God doesn't need the books because he is omniscient. There are no surprises for God in the judgment. The records are there for the benefit of those who are not. God doesn't say, just trust me on this, guys. I've got this. I know what I'm doing. The judgment is for the purpose of complete transparency so that there will be no question in anyone's mind in the entire universe about whether God is fair or just. There will be no questions about was there a miscarriage of justice? Was someone overlooked? Did someone slip through the cracks? In the judgment, all cases are decided and are final, because when Jesus returns, he says, and behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be, Revelation twenty-two twelve. Clearly, we are all held accountable for our conduct, the way we live, our lives do impact our eternal destiny, but it is important to remember that the reward is not a recognition of how wonderful we had been, but how gracious and merciful God is. Mm-hmm. And I'll, that's my kind of little answer there. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I just wanted to mention that's a, a really important point that Joe's brought out because 
I believe that uh, there will be many people in heaven who will be thinking, oh, well, why isn't so-and-so here? And they'll be really surprised about that. But when you go through the books that have been kept, the answer will be given. And also that other people that they perhaps knew on earth and thinking, well, they'll never get to heaven. And lo and behold, they're there. And again, the reasons in these books, the record of their life. So as Joe has said, everything is open, not only before God who knows all this, but before the universe. Yes, thank you, Ken. You know, I think often of the judgments that you hear in our world. And so many times they appear to be neither just nor fair. But we can have the assurance that God's judgments are fair and just. Uh, Yes, Joe. Just in addition to what Ken said, is that those who may be there and are wondering why a loved one is not there, they will be able to see that no stone was left unturned, that God had tried everything within his power to bring this person into into the kingdom, that um, they weren't left out because God was slacking off or, you know, was overlooked. Everything had been done to do to to restore this person into into the kingdom but you know i guess it's for all, for us to know and be reassured that it wasn't because of god's neglect but because this person is not here because they willingly chose not to be and that everything had been done to provide for them i think there's another point that um, joe mentioned and that's this those who were lost wouldn't be happy in heaven Now, there's some interesting comments in a book called The Great Controversy. Um, Some people have said, well, why can't God forgive Satan and his angels? Well, Satan and his angels would not be happy in heaven, and the wicked would not be happy in heaven as well, based on one feature. All those who are in heaven are there because they love Jesus, and they love what he has done for them, and they have been remade into his image. But people who are used to consulting self on every matter, heaven to them would be a terrible place to be. God, in a sense, I I see there's some degree of, a fair degree of mercy in God's judgment on the wicked insofar as he is simply allowing them to uh, reap the results of their choices, but recognizing that even if the situation were reversed, they would still not be happy in a place where unselfishness and unselfish love reigns supreme. Yeah, that's a good point, Brenton. Thank you. Now, we've been looking at, or so far we've been uh, spending a bit of time on the fact that in the judgment, uh, all our works are laid bare and uh, and that we will be judged by our works, what we've done and what we've neglected to do. But there's another element as well, and that's God's mercy, God's character, and how that is also vindicated in the judgment. Brenton, The Bible says the wages of sin is death, and all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, all of us should die, since that's what God's law requires or demands. And if that's true, and the law is enforced, what hope does anybody have in the judgment? Well, Well, the answer to that, Jerry, is that the rest of the text says, but the gift of God is eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. I want to spend a little bit of time on the word in, but first I'll look at Romans 8, 1, where it says, Therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk 
according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, in the book of John, in chapter 15, and I haven't got the time to read it all, the first 11 or 12 verses of John 15 has a dozen references to the word abide. The Greek Greek word for abide is rather interesting. It's meno, and it is it says to remain stable, to persist, to continue to exist, uh, to continue on. The answer to this question is this. Yes, we do deserve to die. The wages of sin is death. Notice that the difference between the two things Paul is saying here. Sin brings wages. The wages are death. Eternal life is not wages. Eternal life is a gift. So the only way to overcome the wages is to give the gift and accept the gift. So you've got those two things there that I think are pretty important. If we accept the gift, the condemnation that we rightly should suffer is removed because Christ stands in our place. And to go back to what I think Ken and Joe were saying, the books of record, when they are passed in judgment, simply have forgiven, 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 written against them. So whatever accusation Satan may bring against us, Christ can simply point to the records and say he or she has confessed those sins, they are forgiven. There's another point in First um, John 4, verse 17 and 18, it talks about perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with judgment. And then it makes a very interesting comment. It says that we can be bold in the day of judgment because as he is in this world, so are we. I think we could spend quite some time on that statement, but it simply means that if we have that relationship, the abiding relationship that I talked about in John 15, uh, if we have that relationship with Jesus we have complete confidence in the judgment. We have confidence not only that we will be cleared in the judgment, we have confidence that God's character will truly be revealed before the whole universe and that all of Satan's claims will be set aside and destroyed. I've got a text in mind that's found in 2 Corinthians 5.21, Brendan, uh, and for me that's, that, that is such... Such it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonder. wonderful person. What a glorious comfort that is. Uh, could you unpack that? Could you read that for us and uh, and help us uh, to understand how that clarifies yeah. Yeah. Uh, God's mercy it's, and justice without him, without him breaking his own law? Yeah. it's uh, In my opinion, Jerry, this text should be right up with John 3.16 in the Bible. Yeah. And it goes like this. He has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What that tells us is that God in Christ has allowed him to take our sin. He became the sin bearer, even though he was sinless. And that's that's the part that blows your mind. How can a person who is perfect come and bear the sin of the whole world, not just my sin or the sin of everyone else on this panel today, but the sin of the whole world from the time of Adam right up until Christ returns. He bore all of that sin, and it says he made him to be sin. In actual fact, he became sin at that point of time in order that we might receive his righteousness. Mm -hmm. This is why I think it's so important that um, in heaven, 
Christ will always be identified with us. The term son of man that he used refers to his relationship to us, which is an eternal relationship. Wasn't just one that he put on for 33 years down here. It's something that he will have for eternity and he will be identified with us in that sense because he took our place. And I think that that's the greatest news the Bible can present. Absolutely. And it reminds me too of uh, John 3, 17, where it says um, that God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. saved. So there is an intense longing in the heart of God to save his children. And uh, as you say, Brenton, that, that verse brings it out so beautifully. You could not wish for a better for a better deal, if that's the word I could use here. It's a, a, a divine transaction. Yeah. And um, how can we turn away from that? Ken, do you wanted to say something? Just briefly wanted to expand on a really important point that Brenton brought out, and that is that uh, there's no condemnation now for those people that abide in Jesus. And sometimes people think when they hear the scriptures, <clears throat> you just have to believe in Jesus and that's it. But you have to live a life similar to the sort of life that Jesus led. And that what it means by abide in Jesus. You have to live as a true Bible Christian, not just do your own thing and just believe, but you don't have the, the works to follow. Also, consequently, as we like to expand on, we are not saved by works. The Bible makes it very clear that we do have to show works that are worthy of repentance. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Lynn, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says that we're saved by grace through faith and not of works, lest anyone should boast. However, in verse 10, it says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, when you read that for the first time, that that might sound like a, a contradiction. Can you enlighten us there? Yes, well, it certainly is not a contradiction. And I'd like to add this. Brenton was saying that the verse that he quoted was up there and should be considered in the same light as John 3.16. And I'd like to say that Ephesians 2 verse 8 is also one of those verses that we should treasure. I'll read it again. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Simply saying that we are saved through God's grace and not by the things that we might try to do to earn eternal life, doing good things or whatever. And then we have verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. All right, verse 9 is all about justification. We are made right with God through God's actions. However, it should be said with our cooperation. If we don't wish to cooperate with God, he will not make us. But And those who choose not to cooperate with God and accept his wonderful gift of grace, which is salvation, they will not have it they will be judged on the other side of the ledger. Now, God is working in us, and that's called sanctification. And again, it comes with our cooperation. 
This reminds me of a friend who I have who lives in New South Wales. He makes wooden clocks, beautiful clocks, all out of wood, except perhaps the axles and the pins, things like that. Beautiful workmanship. Now, when he went and bought the wood to make the wooden clock, that wasn't the end of the matter. Things had to be fashioned and and made. And this is the same thing that God works in us. We have salvation, provided we accept God's grace and forgiveness. But that's not the end of the matter. Although there are many Christians who think that's all that matters. You've heard the expression, once saved, always saved. That's not quite right. It's once saved, always saved, as long as you stay saved, which means maintaining a relationship with God and allowing him to work in us. Now, that word workmanship, that can be translated in a couple of other ways. It could be considered we are God's masterpiece. God is preparing his people. Yes, we're saved through Jesus, but we're not all the way yet. Justification is what we get when we accept Christ's sacrifice. But sanctification is a process that continues while we are alive on this planet, God working his way in us. And that's very important. The thief on the cross who accepted Jesus' salvation right then and there was saved as he was. But they say the disciples, thinking of James and John, who were once described as the sons of thunder, they had some traits of character which were undesirable. And yet we read of John in his later life. He was a beautiful man, and he wrote about the love of God and so on. Mm. So there is a work going on with all of us, with our cooperation, that God desires to do within us. No contradiction in those two verses. They are in harmony. Just to add to that, what Len was saying about works, in Philippians 2 verse 13, it says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And I think um, so often, I mean, I used to be confused about this idea of works and it's not my works that I do by myself without any reference to God. It's the works that I do when I surrender my life to God and I allow him to work in me. And he, as the text says, God works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And it's those works that will be brought into judgment. Yeah, that's a good point. And Nick? Just very quickly on that one, what Denise um, just mentioned, because then... Uh, it can come this idea that we should not be worried about what we do, about the works, because uh, people saying, oh, we are not saved by our works, and it's true, exactly what Denise pointed out. Actually, the reality is that if we are connected with God, those works will follow. It will be seen in our lives. Those works will be recognized. We cannot be complacent and just say, well, we are sinners and we sin every day and this and that. Mm -hmm. By our good works, 
will represent God because we have God in us. And I think this is the difference uh, with the good works. Good works will speak even more about God. Joe, can I ask you, what do we know about when the judgment begins? Does it occur as soon as a person dies? Since from that moment you can no longer repent or confess your sins or ask for forgiveness. What does the prophet Daniel give us in the way of clues? Well, does the judgment begin at death is an interesting question. And I think most people believe that it happens when you die. You face, you, you know, you face God and you face the judge. But I guess in a sense, um, destiny is finalized at death because there are no further opportunities, as you've said, Jerry, to make things right, to choose Christ. This should have all been done while alive. So in that sense, it is what it is. And no one can add to or subtract from the story of your life or my life. Um, as for when the judgment takes place, well, the books of Daniel and Revelation point us to the events in the last days of Earth's history. Now, we have already looked at how the first angel in Revelation 40 announces that the hour of the judgment has come. The book of Daniel also explains when the judgment began. Now, in, in Daniel 7, and Daniel 9 elaborates, and this is also paralleled in Daniel 2, all very good reading. Um, in these chapters, God revealed the history of the world to his prophet Daniel. But it wasn't history then. It was the future. Some 2,300 years into the future, the rise and fall of nations and powers, each world power lasting for a season, only to be swallowed up by another. Uh, most people would have heard of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and eventually the breakup of the Roman Empire and the persecution of God's people for 1,260 years. But it doesn't stop there. While Daniel was considering the things that had been shown him, he says, and as I looked, and he goes on to describe the courtroom scene, which we have discussed earlier with the ancient of days, you know, is seated, the court is seated and the books are opened and God, the father examines the book and the judgment takes place. Now the vision continues until Daniel sees one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. Hence, the judgment occurs shortly before Jesus returns, which corresponds with the angel's first message about the judgment hour being at hand. Both these, Jerry, and panel and viewer, listener, both are all the point to the nearness of Christ's return. You know, and if we look back on Daniel 2, the stone cut without human hand that hits the statue at the bottom at the feet. It's the second coming of Christ, and we are really living in the tippy toes of time. So it is the, the judgment is right before Jesus returns. And as many have mentioned so far, it is is ongoing now, mm. we believe. Well, that's exciting in a way, isn't it? Um, some people might say it's scary, but I think it's exciting that things are coming to a conclusion. I think it is scary, Jerry. I think it is scary in the sense that if you are not with Christ, you've got every reason to be afraid. <laughs> is that a bad thing to say? But if you have hid your life in Christ, then there's every reason to rejoice. Absolutely. And, and thanks for bringing that out because the, le the, uh, the study this morning is really about the good news of the judgment. And there's plenty of good news as well. Brenton? Just a story. Um... 
Jerry, that will illustrate this and what we've been saying about um, judgment taking place when a person's life has ceased. Two weeks ago um, tomorrow, I conducted a funeral service at Udnadatta for an Indigenous person who had passed away. Now, the interesting point about this is that he gave his life to the Lord the day before he died. Now, the question would be this. Uh, in the judgment, where is Edward Smith going to be? Edward Smith is in the same position the thief on the cross alongside Jesus was in. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And I believe, and I was, we were able, Brent and I, to share that hope with the folk who came to pay their respects at that particular funeral. But it was interesting, apparently, just before he passed away, he flung out his arms as though he was receiving something. And then shortly after that, he fell asleep. And I think it's wonderful to know that Edward Will, his, his life is hid in Christ. His judgment is secure because Christ is his personal saviour. Yeah. And one day Edward will meet the thief who was on the cross, as we all will. And I think that's going to be a very wonderful opportunity to talk to people who, shall we say, had an 11th hour conversion. Yeah. But I think the important point for those of us who have been with Christ is to continue to stay with him, to stay in that relationship with him so that we can all meet together on that special day. Well, amen. Thanks, Brenton, for that. Now, Ken, when we talk about the good news of the judgment, what difference would it make to you and your life right now if knowing you have to appear before the God of the judgment, the God, the God in judgment, to determine your eternal destiny and whether you should live forever and whether you should, or whether you should be lost forever, you know in advance that the verdict is in your favour. What difference would that make to you right now? Well, Jerry, firstly, it's just so fantastic. I can't really get my head around it, that the God of this universe would, through his Son, give us the opportunity to live forever in a wonderful land that we can't begin to understand. But as uh, Denise, sorry, as Joe mentioned a moment ago, there is fear there. I mean, when you think about it, even for us to stand before God Almighty in his throne and kingdom, it's just going to be absolutely awe-inspiring. And to think of my sinful life and that God has accepted me, it's just, it's just, it's so hard to get your head around. And it is amazing, but we do read in Daniel 7 and verse 22, a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. Now these are the saints in whom the love of God has blossomed and been perfected. They may have then boldness in the day of judgment as we see in First John and chapter 4 and verse 17, knowing and believing that God has given them eternal life. And again, First John 5 and verse 11, John then says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. I'd just like to add also, there's no other way to cry, there's no other way to heaven or God unless it's through Jesus Christ. And again, it's just the most amazing thing. And I think I would speak for all the panel here. I'm going to say there's not one of us that cannot wait for the return of Jesus. Amen. You know, we sing that beautiful hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. 
Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. And we should have that assurance. But Brenton, is there a danger of being so confident about your salvation that you become presumptuous? Are people who are Christians today guaranteed eternal life, no matter what they decide to do with the rest of their life? Well, I think the first issue, Jerry, is that um, <clears throat> the once saved, always saved, which you do still hear. Unfortunately, that is not true. You give your heart to the Lord, but you have to stay in that relationship. And Matthew seven twenty one to 23, in my opinion, is amongst the worst texts in the whole of the Bible, some of the most discouraging texts, because it says something along these lines. Not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done many wonderful things in your name? And then I will declare unto them, I don't know you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. In Matthew 25, you have the parable of the ten virgins. What's the problem with the five virgins who are left outside? When they come knocking on the door, the answer is, I don't know you. And it seems as though those in Matthew 7 are expecting an answer in the affirmative. It's almost as though they're absolutely astonished that they're not in the kingdom of heaven because they did. They prophesied in Christ's name, they cast out demons in his name, they did miracles in his name, and yet he says, I don't know who you are. Um, I think it gives us cause for thought that it's one thing to accept Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. It's another thing to remain in a, a deep and intimate relationship with him that is actually growing. And it seems to me that I know we're not to judge people, but it seems to me as though these people were doing all these things, claiming to be doing them in Christ's name. But in actual fact, they were far from the Lord because he doesn't recognise them. So I think an answer to your question, yes. It is possible to um, be deceived insofar as you don't continue to remain in a relationship with the Lord. Now, if you believe in once saved, always saved, you're going to fall for this deception because you believe that whatever you've done after you've accepted Christ has no bearing on your future. Mm. And so, therefore, I think it's very important to remain in Christ on a day-by-day basis. Yes, thanks, Brenton. Joe, in Revelation 4, we're invited, it says there, come up here and I will show you. We're invited to enter us through an open door into heaven's sanctuary. What does John see in vision? And in particular, what do we know for certain about the identity of the 24 elders? And why is that significant for God's people here on earth? Well, it's significant because it can give us great encouragement. Um, I'll read a text. Well, there's a, a number of references to the 24 elders. And one of these verses comes to mind, and um, it says, Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. That's Revelation 4.4. These are clearly those who've been redeemed from the earth. They are clothed in white robes, symbolizing Christ's righteousness. Now, only the inhabitants of this world need a robe of righteousness. Unfalling, unfallen beings and angels do not need forgiveness or redemption. So I think there's significance there. The elders are also wearing gold crowns. They had been awarded a crown of life. 
And I think of James 1.12, that says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Even Paul in 2 Timothy 4.8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There are many other texts like this which point to the 24 elders as being human who had overcome the devil, not in their own strength, but through God's power. And as Brenton said, had a deep and intimate relationship that was growing even when it wasn't easy. Even when it wasn't easy, Joe. Yes, for sure. sure. So the 24 elders, as you pointed out, Joe, were overcomers. That that word uh, keeps on propping up. Now, Jesus uses the expression, he who overcomes, seven times in Revelation, in the chapters 2 and 3. And every time he says or mentions the word overcomers, he adds a blessing. Len, can you run through those verses with us and, and also mention the blessings that are connected to them? Well, yes. This is Revelation chapter 2, the messages to the churches. And those churches are symbolic of Christianity through time. Uh, I want to read chapter 2, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, I'm going to skip over a few. But as Jerry said, there are seven promises, and each of them have that wording, to him who overcomes. I want to go to chapter 3 and verse 21. To him who overcomes, I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, there's a very important issue we're talking about, and um, I know there are many people who believe, and perhaps some of you listening today believe, that when you accept Christ, that is, when you are saved, That's it. But there is more. And as I've just said, here in Revelation, it speaks of him who overcomes. I accept, and I think we should all accept, that uh, this is Christ working in us. Now, I want to use a little analogy. Uh, A bird, a female bird, lays an egg. She looks after that egg. And eventually the chick hatches. At that point of time, the bird looks after the chick. It's the work of the bird, the parent bird, that the chick grows. But one day the chick has to learn to fly. So what does it do? Just sit in the nest and wish it could fly? No way. It stands up in the wind and flaps its wings and develops strength until it's strong enough to fly. And I see this in the life of a Christian. Being saved is like being the chick, but there is a personal involvement in becoming saved. And we've mentioned this a few times. Once saved, always saved, as long as you stay saved or remain saved. So, We have a responsibility, not only to accept the grace of God, but to 
be a be in partnership with God as He seeks to refine our characters to the point where we are overcomers over sin and temptation. Thank you, Lynn. And finally, let us quickly go to a very important thing that we find in Revelation five, and it talks about the Lamb who is worthy. Nick, can you take us through that? Yeah, sure, uh, uh, Jerry. As you just said, uh, we are talking uh, today about the good news of the judgment. The reason why it's a good news, because we have a great Savior. Jesus Christ is in the picture here. We talked about quite a bit about some of the passages in the Bible, in Revelation. If you look in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, it talks about those seven churches and the messages to those seven churches with good and bad. The condition on this earth. But then in chapter 4, it talks about worship in heaven. You see, we are very well connected here, heaven and earth. And in chapter 5, Jerry, we have a wonderful picture here. Even though for uh, John, the revelator, that was very terrifying first. We haven't got much time now to really dig deep into this chapter, chapter 5, but just a few things, if I could bring to your attention, is that we are talking about here the pre-Advent judgment. What that means, this judgment takes place before Jesus comes back again to take us home. The reason why? Because you'll see some of these passages that it talks about there was nobody able to open a scroll, which uh, John the Revelator uh, saw, and it says, no one in heaven, neither on the earth, which means things are still happening on the earth when this book is about to be opened. This is a very good clue to understand that, that this is about a judgment before Jesus comes again. Now, not angelic being was able to open those seals which were on the scroll. Mm. And you may ask the question, why is that the case? Because we may think, oh, well, uh, uh, in heaven there are beings who have never seen they can be able to do this sort of thing. But no. And John was crying out, you know, when bitterly crying when he saw that nobody can open it. And it was mentioned here that we have the throne with the 24 seats and the 24 elders sitting there. And one of the elders comforted John and come and say, hey, there is somebody able, and that's Jesus Christ. Now, this is an amazing thing that one of the elders um, stood up and said that because he's also coming through this battle on this earth. Because that was not an angelical thing. Now, uh, in Revelation, if we move a bit further in Revelation chapter uh, 5, uh, verse 5, we hear that, um, you know, the aged uh, prophet uh, beholds the only way anyone can pass the final judgment at the throne of God. That's Jesus Christ. And, you know, it's taking us back again to the Old Testament. Because it says here in chapter, uh, verse 5, says that only the one who's the line of the tribe of Judah. Where we find that? We find that in the Old Testament. All the um, prophecies about Messiah. 
about our Lord Jesus Christ. As I said, um, Jerry, it's not enough time to really look into chapter 5, but I'll invite you, my dear friend, listening today to open the Bible and read these wonderful chapters in Revelation because you'll be encouraged. You'll learn a bit more about the wonderful good news about the judgment which takes place in heaven. Thank you, Nick. Listeners, I'd like to just uh, close with the reading of this uh, following statement, and um, I think it brings out the beautiful truth about the good news of the judgment that we've been talking about. And it says there, the purpose of the judgment is not to find out how bad we are, but to reveal how good God is. Beautiful statement. Just think of that. Denise, could you close with a prayer for us, please? Yes, certainly, Jerry. Our dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you today for your awesome power and your love for us, and we want to praise your name and bring you glory. We especially thank you for Jesus and the good news of the judgment because Jesus is our judge. He is the one who died for us. He is the one who rose again and who ministers in heaven on our behalf. And when we come before the judgment as his people, he declares us as innocent because he covers us with his robe of righteousness. But in our relationship with him on a daily basis, he also provides us with the power to keep the commandments and to uh, do the works that he has prepared for us to do, uh, to honour him and to bring glory to his name. And we know that Jesus doesn't want anybody to be lost, but everybody to be part of his eternal kingdom. So I pray today that all of our panel and our listeners will endeavor to um, follow Jesus on a daily basis, to invite him into their lives and to live for him and to do the Mm. things that bring glory and honor to his name. And we pray that... um, We will not be afraid of the judgment, but we can come before God's throne with confidence, knowing that Jesus has gone before us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, everyone, for your participation today. Indeed, a very interesting and wonderful study about the good news of the judgment. We are going to continue uh, on this um, aspect uh, next time, my dear friend listening today. And we're going to approach uh, um, under the topic of the hour of his judgment. We are going to learn even more specific about uh, how this judgment takes place and when. May God richly bless you and have a wonderful, safe walk in the footsteps of Jesus.